0: Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the podcast. We are joined today by a visitor from before, uh, Representative Ted Deutsch, representative of Florida's 22nd Congressional District, who is uh, the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on the Middle East, North Africa, and Global Counterterrorism, uh, and a leading spokesperson on a variety of other issues. And we're really glad that you can take a few minutes to join us. Welcome, Congressman.
1: Great to be with you. Thanks, David. Um,
0: let me ask you a couple questions that come out of the news and then dive into a couple questions that are looking forward on more uh, foreign policy related issues. Uh, obviously, on everybody's mind, as we're just coming out of the weekend with the uh, impeachment uh, vote in the Senate, um, and I'd be interested in your reaction to that.
1: Sure. And I'll give you my reaction, which actually leads into the bigger issue, because because whether it's here or around the world, the issue that we're dealing with is democracy and a slide into the risk of a, a slide into authoritarianism. And you, you saw an expected result, which is, unfortunately, the president wasn't convicted. Uh, 57% of the United States Senate did think that the president incited insurrection in an election. That's a landslide. Um, and we can't forget that, but the, but for for all of the Republican senators who, um, whose uh, whose first loyalty, their their priority is being still being on the good side of Donald Trump, rather than uh, than defending. For, I mean, all throughout, defending our institutions, defending our Constitution, defending the place where we work against insurrectionists. All of that was front and center, and they failed. They just they they didn't they didn't do it. We know. What their priorities are, and it's um, it's a real. It, I, I'm obviously upset about the result, but I'm really concerned about what that means as we head forward into the Biden administration and and ultimately toward future elections, where where the truth is is apparently for for so many no longer relevant. All
0: right, I'd like to circle back to the foreign policy implications because I think they're important. Yeah. There's one other issue though I, that I thought of you about because. Um, February 14th is also the uh, anniversary of the Parkland shooting. That's your district. You've been outspoken on those issues. And I think one of the enduring shames of the United States Congress is its inability to do anything following Parkland or following Sandy Hook or following any of these other uh, issues. We now have a democratic president, democratically controlled house, democratically controlled senate. Do you think we can expect any change on on gun policy?
1: I don't think there's I don't think there's any any choice but to demand it, uh, I, as you point out, David, I, like you, like the, the folks who tune into your show, I, I, it's, it's inexcusable that, that after 26 and seven-year-old kids were slaughtered at an elementary school in Connecticut, that Congress couldn't bring itself to do a thing. And it's now been three years since 17 people were killed at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. You're right. There's no excuse now. It needs to be a priority. It it can't be the thing that we do after we tackle our priorities. This needs to be a priority. The only reason, and and it pains me to say this, but the reason we haven't seen more school shootings over the past year is because so many schools were closed. And, And there's a lot that we need to do, but let's start with what should be the easiest, which is requiring every single person who buys a gun to get a background check um, it, it's it's supported by the vast majority of Americans and we need to to make people understand that uh, and, and push forward the president put out a great statement on the uh, on the anniversary of the the terrible shooting in my district uh, but now as I said it has to be a priority we need to make this front and center because it can save lives and it can it can it can contribute to a, a, a greater sense of of confidence in our system, if for once we can take on a, a big entrenched lobby in in the, the gun manufacturers um, and beat them, um, not not because of them, but because we all stand on the side of keeping our communities safe.
0: Yeah, and on top of that, the NRA is on the ropes. I, of course, we have to go through Senate where the vote the edge is 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 slim. Um, but there are reconciliation solutions. As you were talking, I was thinking, you know, if you got to go through reconciliation, tax the guns. There's got to be something we can do, right?
1: There, there are there are a lot of things that we can do. But I am um, just given that we, we were just talking about the election, uh, David. I sat in the White House after Parkland when Donald Trump said one of the very few things that I agreed with the whole time he was in the Oval Office when he pointed to the Republicans that I, I serve with in the House and Senate, and said, we need to have universal background checks. You know why we don't have it? Because you're terrified of the gun life. His words. And then, of course, he proved it. So, too, is he. But um, but that's he was he was right about that. And, uh, and the young people, the student survivors of Parkland who helped deliver a gun safety majority in the House, and then continued that work into the next election. So, now we have a gun safety majority all the way through government, um, that needs to mean something and we need to act and we need to look at every single opportunity we have to do it.
0: Thank you. Uh, So let's shift over to foreign policy because you're in a very important position there. And frankly, I've just been talking about uh, recent events and recent anniversaries. One of the things that struck me um, about uh, the uprising on Capitol Hill on January 6th was it came very close to the 10-year anniversary of the Arab Spring. And uh, there was a, you know, there was a hope suffused throughout the region that that was a harbinger of change. Um, and some things have changed in the region, some for the worse, some for the better. Um, this part of the world has changed and sort of where it fits in our focus. Even, you know, global t- counterterrorism, which is part of your brief, um, for the past twenty years, has been sort of number one on the hit parade in terms of foreign policy for the United States. But we are clearly now shifting to a greater and justifiably greater, I think, focus on domestic ca- counterterrorism. So, as you look in this role, which you've been in before, going forward, what what are the priorities? What would you like to accomplish?
1: What we've learned in since the beginning, what we've learned in 2021, David, is that the uh, we can't just focus on uh, we can't just focus on on the the connection between white identity terrorism, white nationalism uh, and terrorism in Europe and what we saw here and as it played out with the, the neo-Nazis in Charlottesville and the, and the anti-Semite who went in to, to shoot up the synagogue in Pittsburgh and, and all of the, in El Paso. There are the examples, but it's from a, a, from a counter-terrorism standpoint, we can't just look at the terrorists, we have to look also at, uh, at the, the environment that they're operating in. And in, in the Middle East where, where you started, uh, you're right, there were, there were lots of high hopes um, about what may come and, and there have been some advancements and, and some fits and starts, but, but if you go from the last administration and the way they treated the region, in particular, um, a country like Saudi Arabia, which they viewed as a, a market to sell arms to—that was that's the, the Trump approach—and and you contrast that with the early days of the Biden administration, where they've been clear about pressing them on on human rights and democracy. Um, you realize that we've got to be doing that everywhere in the world uh, because the the misinformation that the russians use to undercut democracy and to sow division in our countries is seized upon by the politicians on the far right who are only too happy to use it to advance their power which then getting back to your question creates this environment where you've empowered these these white supremacist terrorists so from a it's a long way of saying to fight terrorism white supremacist white nationalist terrorism, it, it requires us to also focus on building uh, a, a democracy that needs to push back against the efforts to, to undermine it, whether that's coming from individual politicians or whether that's coming from, uh, from, from external forces as well.
0: Today, uh, this administration is approaching all these issues, even in the first few weeks, quite differently. Um, uh, both from the Trump administration and also from the Obama administration. There's much more communication. There are different priorities. um, uh, And there's, you know, what I call the the kind of deafness that comes of experience. They understand nuance uh, in in diplomacy. Joe Biden has more foreign policy experience than any president in American history. Uh, And his team has been working together as one team for longer than 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 any team i can think of but i'll give you an example of one of those bits of nuance and and that came from the press conference that took place today we're recording this um, on a tuesday and jen saki at the white house was asked about saudi arabia and she did two things that were kind of interesting one thing she did was she she sort of stepped around referring to saudi arabia as an ally said the relationship was going to have to be reframed and um and Said that the appropriate counterparty for President Biden in Saudi Arabia was not MBS, who got a lot of headlines and FaceTime during the Trump administration. Uh, it was his father, King Salman, uh, which was just, you know, a special kind of diplomatic shade. And I'm just wondering yeah, what you. Think.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, a- absolutely. It is all she's doing. All she was doing today. Um, is continuing what what this administration as a whole has started, which is to you know the, during the campaign, Biden President Biden talked a lot about the importance of democracy and we're going to have a summit of democracies and and that's that's true and it's critically important. But when she says something like this, she in her own way she's sending the same kind of message that that President Biden sends directly. When he says to Vladimir Putin on the phone, all of the things that Donald Trump was uh, unwilling and afraid to say the whole time he was president, um, and it—it's America, uh, it's it's America reasserting itself in the world, not just as a, a country that's going to have influence, but that that influence is going to advance our values, and that means uh, being clear that things are going to be different and that statement today by her um as you put it diplomatic shade i've not heard that um but that's exactly what it was
0: um another example of this kind of body language uh message sending body language diplomacy has come in the fact that um, biden has not really got around to calling leaders in the middle east including Bibi netanyahu and this has led to people in the Israeli um, sort of diplomatic political establishment, pulling out their hair, writing op-eds, sending tweets, saying, call us, uh, and so forth. Now the, the White House has said they will call Bibi first. Um, what do you think sequencing things the way they've done sends in the way of a message?
1: Well, it, it, the administration had to do this Fairly significant reset in just in terms of how it's going to operate and what its what its priorities are and and in the case of the Middle East that doesn't um, that doesn't mean that the work isn't being done that I've heard these same criticisms but the conversations are are taking place between the Secretary of State and his counterpart in Israel and National Security Advisor and his counterpart in Israel um, but. As he works his way through, as the president works his way around the world, uh, I, I think he's he's making clear that um, that there are uh, there are important places for us to focus all around the world. That it's not just a question of the relationships that we have, and obviously he has a long a long relationship with Prime Minister Netanyahu. It, it's also a question of of having the conversations um, that that set us up for success. In the Middle East, the calls that the, the president has been having already, um, if we're, for, for someone like me who spends a lot of time thinking about and, 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 and worrying about what happens in that region, uh, it may be, a lot of people draw the conclusion that because he hasn't gotten to the Middle East calls yet that somehow that's less important. I would suggest that what the president realizes is that our alliances matter uh, and promoting our values and human rights matter and when we have those, when he has those conversations with leaders around the world, it's ultimately going to strengthen his position. In uh, the conversations that that take place, really, when we get to the Middle East, especially focused on uh, on Iran and the threat of a nuclear Iran, where he's going to need to bring countries in, the same countries that that President Trump pushed out um, every day, <laughs> undermining um, undermining relationships. It, it, David, it's. We're also having this conversation the week where the Secretary of Defense is going to be speaking to NATO and the, the president's got the G7 and the president's going to be speaking. It's virtual, but he's going to be speaking at the Munich Security Conference, um, a, a place where where Macron and, and uh, Merkel are going to speak. And it, it's not just about Europe. It's about the transatlantic relationship and all of the ways that that impacts our, uh the work we do around the world, including the Middle East. It's just a, it's a, it's a, I think a different way of, of thinking about it, but it, it all starts with leading um, leading and, and exerting our, our um, uh, pushing our values out into the world, which is going to help us when we get to the Middle East as well.
0: Right. And I think, you know, embedded in what you've just said, is, I think, in knowing the folks in and around the administration, um, an important principle. And it's a different principle from that of the Trump administration and of the Bush administration. And honestly, I think it may even be a different principle from that of the Obama administration. And that is, unlike Trump, Biden believes in the international system. He believes in the international order. He's recommitting to that. And he sees America's Um, alliances as perhaps our most unique strategic asset. Um, Unlike Bush, Biden does not believe that American exceptionalism can ever be taken to mean America the sole superpower or America acting alone. Uh, That's a corollary to this because it means we have to work with our alliances. And if Obama was colored a little bit by coming after Bush, who overreached, and therefore, I think Obama had to lean a little bit in the other direction. Biden, coming after Trump, who essentially tried to withdraw into a gated community, is going to lean into restructuring this and bringing these alliances back together. This is an opportunity. It's an opportunity that exists particularly, for example, in the Middle East, where, you know, a lot of the sort of infrastructure of the international community was built 75 years ago. And just like, our highways and bridges in the U S could use, uh, an upgrade. Um, and I'm, and I'm, I'm wondering, A, if you agree with that long description and B if you think there's an opportunity for a kind of a new security order in the, in the, in the middle East,
1: I'd say two things on that first year, your, your point about, uh, about the importance of alliances. I, I mean, we, we talked about Putin a bit, but there are the, the, the authoritarians who have seen their influence rise during the Trump administration um, and, and during COVID also, which is obviously still the the top priority for this administration reengaging in the world. Um, When, when Orban used the pandemic as uh, an opportunity to essentially announce that he could rule by decree, this is, um, this is what we're combating. He was doing what so, what I think too many other leaders around the world look to and, uh, as something that they would aspire to so it's important to get back out on the world stage uh, again not to say just look at us as you point out but to actually say work with us um, to as democracies to preserve uh, a, 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 a democratic uh, ideal in the Middle East uh, I mean things have changed and uh, it a, again, after the Trump administration, where everything seemed to be part of the the, the Trump arms bazaar, I mean, which he talked about in his very first his very first trip when he went to Riyadh. That was that was the whole conversation, um, and and you look at this administration coming forth right at the start and saying, "Look, humanitarian the humanitarian crises in the world matter, and Yemen's the worst one, and we're not going to support that any longer," and um, and. The Houthis are are doing awful things, and we don't we don't countenance them. And we 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 certainly don't support them, and and it's important to stand up to to the atrocities. But we also know that what Secretary Pompeo did before he left was to make it exceedingly more difficult for aid groups to to help the uh, the, the people uh, meet the, the humanitarian needs. So that's leading again. I think with our our values and showing with humanitarian. Crises need to be addressed. We've seen it in the way they've approached human rights, and and after the the Abraham Accords, um, I think there is now a conversation about what what it looks like in the region when um, when we're having these conversations, not just yes about security, but also about about human rights and the fact that that they're related and that we have expectations on our partners with respect to human rights that um, I think will help us build upon the Abraham Accords um, in in a very different way than than President Trump uh, put them together.
0: Um, So you you mentioned Iran earlier, that's clearly an important issue. Um, President Trump tried to undo what President Obama did, even many of those within the Obama administration, including some who are back in this administration, um, felt there were aspects to the Iran deal that could have been better. Um, uh, it looks like they're trying to get in the direction of a JCPOA plus kind of formulation. How do you expect that to play out?
1: Again, the difference between uh, now with the president who's committed to actually engaging with our our allies on this um, and recognize the importance of uh, of working in the international community uh you, you can't there's just no disputing the fact that uh, president after Trump pulled us out of the Jcpoa that Iran is is moving faster they're uh, they're they're moving faster on construction they're the announcement that they may stop they may stop inspections um, the, the the ongoing uh, use of um, of the centrifuges advanced centrifuges this is these are all things that that uh, have to be addressed, we're in a much better position to do it uh, through international cooperation. The Europeans uh, are are as concerned about, for example, the, the missile Iranian missile program um, as, as those in the region are. So uh, I don't know. I think we have to give the administration a chance to lay out what it looks like, how we get from where we are now, where Iran is, um, is continuing to, to move forward on the nuclear path um, to an agreement that brings them back into compliance and that allows the, the international um, community to work together to address the, some of the things that, that Secretary Blinken and others talked about uh, as, as needing to be strengthened and, uh, and lengthened in the JCPOA. But, but I, I, I don't, it, David, we can't, it, at this point in the administration, I don't think we say we're now at the point where we've got new administration, we get back in, everything's fine. Um, they're actually being really thoughtful in the way they approach the world and trying to do this. And that kind of diplomacy will then give them opportunities that I, I frankly think we're not really um, even thinking of now that that uh, can address this threat in a in a productive way.
0: No, no question about that. Um, look, I, I realize you have a busy schedule. You've got a very limited amount of time. So I'm just going to pose one last question here just to pick up sure. on the, 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 the final sort of leg of the stool within, within your subcommittee. Um, and that has to do with global counterterrorism. I think, first of all, how we handle uh, any kind of a drawdown in Afghanistan um, re- reflects on that, because after all, most people don't remember it. It was a generation ago that we did it, but we went into yep. Afghanistan uh, in order to ensure that it did not become a haven again for terrorists. And if we simply hand the keys back to the Taliban, um, it could be it, that could happen again. So I, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. And then, is there a way to dovetail the global counterterrorism agenda with the domestic counterterrorism agenda? So, you know, for example, there's some collaboration on intelligence, hardening assets, working within the United States and within U.S. organizations. Um, to ensure that they are more, they are less vulnerable to terrorism of any sort.
1: Well, yes, they. So on Afghanistan, there are there, there have a couple things. There have been advances, and we we don't throw all those advances away, especially with respect to women and girls in Afghanistan, um, even beyond the the, uh, the terror threats. Um, by as you say, tossing the keys back to the Taliban, saying, "Well, thanks for the thanks for the agreement." We'll worry. We'll worry not so much about the fine print. Um, See you later. That doesn't work. Uh, The administration's already signaled. I think a much more thoughtful approach to this. So um, that. But I also, David, as part of this, even if we're talking about global counterterrorism, we also have to talk about the AUMF because they're they're obviously. I mean that that's that's how we got there and. Um, and it's it, it would be a lot easier for us, um, I think, to go forward after having a, a, a full conversation on the House floor and the Senate floor about what fighting terrorism means, uh, about the extent of an AUMF, both in terms of scope and duration. Um, and and I, I think that needs to happen soon. And and. That's, that's on the existing the AUMF to go into Afghanistan. The AUMF on Iraq, I, I think I've supported, um, I've, I've been clear, I don't think we, we, we need it, we should revoke it, um, we should move on and get back to, to the, the original AUMF, which will allow us then to formulate a more thoughtful policy on fighting terrorism instead of having to think about how to fit whatever it is we're doing um, into a document that, as you point out, is from another generation. So that, that's a piece of it that I don't think we, we link um, or we make a part of this conversation often enough. And, and then in terms of cooperation and the domestic piece, um, yeah, there is it, it, it's, the, it's the concern of, of terrorism and, and the violence that we've seen here that is consistent with what we've seen uh, in terrorist acts around the world. Um, there needs to be greater greater cooperation. The uh, State Department is pursuing we, we, something that we started in the last Congress, uh, a full examination of white identity terrorism, which uh, has, has reared its ugly head in too many places around the world, including here. Um, we, cyber needs to be a part of this because too often I think we draw distinctions between, between uh, more traditional acts of terror and cyber Terror and and we can't do that anymore, especially if we're going to talk about how we harden um, our uh, our targets, since that includes infrastructure. And, and then the last piece is uh, again, how is it how is it all related? Well, the 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 terrorists, the white supremacists, the, the terrorists who are um, who are looking for ways to strike are emboldened by an ad, by an atmosphere in which uh, people are willing to accept lies. And lies that are advanced by the highest levels in our government for political gain, um, start that whole, that whole vicious circle again. And I, I um, so when we're talking about global counterterrorism, that necessarily means defending our democracy from backsliding into autocracy. And that's probably for another program. Hopefully you'll invite me back.
0: <laughs> we'll definitely invite you back. I do think, as you mentioned, you know potential attacks on our infrastructure that they should you know save their ammunition because if we don't improve the infrastructure as you saw today in texas you know a snowstorm will take out our infrastructure terrorists don't even have to 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 make the effort um and i would yeah, that's a
1: grid that is a grid that clearly needs to be hardened <laughs> yeah no question it needs to be
0: hardened against republican politicians yeah. in texas um, yep. but in in any event uh, thank you very much sorry to bombard you with questions and sort of turn this into 20 questions in 25 minutes but you were great as you always are we'll invite you back again hope you'll join us um always and a pleasure. Uh, good good luck as this new era in american uh, politics and foreign policy unfolds
1: uh thanks david enjoy the conversation a lot thanks
0: thank you bye bye
1: okay take care